Yo, welcome to another episode of Simply Bitcoin IRL. Today's guest is Matt Hill. He's a CEO of Start9 Labs, one of my favorite companies in the space. So many interesting things they're doing. They just released the Embassy Pro, which in my opinion is going to change everything. We're going to get to all that, but before, I want to give a very special shout out to the company that powers the show, swanbitcoin.com. It's the best place to buy Bitcoin. So on the best way to build your Bitcoin stack with automated Bitcoin savings plans and instant purchases serving clients of any size from $10 to $10 million. As a company by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners, I highly recommend them. Go check out swanbitcoin.com today. I want to say hello to my guest, Matt. It's always a great time. Um, I don't think we've done a Simply Bitcoin IRL before. I think we've just done the regular show. But uh, welcome, man. And I'm and I was and I was telegramming you because you know for a fact because you. So to kind of give everyone the the short story, right? We were on the floor of Bitcoin 2022, and I went to the Start Nine booth, and um, Matt and I knew each other from before. And I went up to him, and he's like, Nico. I got to tell you about the Embassy Pro. And, you know, like, I, I don't really buy things on the fr floor. But when he was convincing me, I was like, here, take, you know, that meme, take my. Um, so um, I, you know, I, I put money on the pre-sale of the Embassy Pro and I'm really excited for it. I'm really looking forward to it because one of the things, guys, that I have issues with, with, for example, Raspberry Pi as my node is unfortunately it takes a long time to sync sometimes. So especially if you've been using that Bitcoin wallet for a long time, but the Embassy Pro is a workhorse. Um, I think it has a uh, an i9 in it. Is that correct? Or an i7? Seven. An i7. So what is the Embassy Pro? What is your logic behind it? And who's it for? Matt? Um, give me one second. I actually just had someone walk in real quick. So we're trying to join the Twitter spaces so that we can be live with the company account here and all good okay. password manager sharing issues um yeah don't worry about it okay it sinks it sinks sorry question embassy pro who's it for why'd we do it yes who's it for why'd we do it why'd you do it better said oh okay uh because the raspberry pi as more and more people are beginning to recognize um has some sort of essential shortcomings when it comes to reliability and scalability of these self-hosted software systems. The Raspberry Pi is really designed for um, originally children to kind of tinker with uh, mini PCs and learn how to do coding and, and to you know host software. Um, early on, the Bitcoin ecosystem adopted Raspberry Pis as the go-to uh, easiest, cheapest, yet adequately powerful way to run uh, a Bitcoin node. And to be fair, that's true, right? Raspberry Pis are fine. In fact, the Embassy One, we continued to sell uh, with the Raspberry Pi as our single board computer base. Uh, it just has its limitations. Um, and those come in a variety of factors, um, primarily from uh, an inadequacy of power. So for instance, if you want to plug in like a big HDD or multiple SSDs into the Raspberry Pi, it's going to fail. Um, it just doesn't provide an enormous amount of actual uh, power to devices that are plugged into it, and so can lead to things like data corruption if you attempt to do that. Um, number two is the CPU is just not super strong. So when it comes to like syncing Bitcoin, that's going to be uh, the primary bottleneck, and you're going to get sync times um, anywhere from like two days to two weeks, depending on a variety of other factors like bandwidth and whether or not you're running a four gig Pi or an eight gig Pi. But anyway, long story short, uh, the Raspberry Pi just is kind of a entry-level beginner's device. And um, what we need for not only Bitcoin and Lightning and all these layer three applications that are coming online, but also for just the whole host of other applications out there that have nothing to do with Bitcoin, but are really important to the concept of, of self-sovereignty, privacy, censorship resistance. Um, they just have, they have compute and RAM and disk needs that the Raspberry Pi just wasn't going to uh, fulfill out of the box. So uh, we knew something more powerful was necessary. Um, and we, we took the initiative to get a, ahead of that. I mean, way before the industry was even moving away from the Raspberry Pi, we had the Embassy Pro already in the works, already pre-selling it. Um, and so we just 
we, we knew where the, where the trend was going and decided to get ahead of it and put the best, biggest, baddest thing uh, out there. The Embassy Pro is, you know, like you said, it's an i7, uh, 32 gigs of RAM, comes with a two terabyte NVMe, uh, and it is based on Purism's Pure OS, which um, by as part of the as part of the bootloader uh, disables the Intel management engine, which is sort of the known backdoor of of Intel chips. Um, Purism has managed to disable that uh, in firmware, and so it's also the most uh, secure uh, device that you can get um, that is based on an Intel chip. So yeah, and, and that's exactly what you told me on the floor of the Bitcoin conference, and I was really excited. And what what got me excited was when you told me it's like because I'm an Electrum junkie. I've been using it for a while. I know people are like Sparrow, 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 but I don't, it's, it's, it's my taste and you got to leave me alone. Um, and uh, the Raspberry Pi, it just takes so long to sync, right? Especially if you've been using that Bitcoin wallet for a long time and you just have all these addresses, it just takes at least a minute or two. Um, and then another thing that you were telling me that was really fascinating was this concept of being I know that you told me over telegram that it's not going to be available to quarter one but this being this this ability to be able to connect to your your node remotely over clearnet and you were telling me on how you were going to do that behind a domain and all these very interesting stuff so could you tell the audience about that because I think ideally that's what I that's what I've been looking for a long time right you know, if, if I'm overseas, if I'm traveling, which I do a lot, right, and, you know, I spin up my, my, my Electrum wallet, unfortunately, you know, I'll connect, it, either you could do through Tor, but just kind of be at, you know, it's kind of very slow, or what I mostly do is, of course, you know, I have different Bitcoin wallets, I turn on a VPN, and I just use the Blockstream, um, the Blockstream uh, Electrum server, right, and that sucks, right? Because you're doxing some of those Bitcoin uh, addresses to Blockstream. Even though I love Adam, I think it's a great company. Uh, but still, ideally, you know, this is Bitcoin. You want to minimize that trust. So could you talk a little bit about that functionality that you guys are looking to implement into the Embassy Pro? Yeah. Uh, and, and to be clear, it will not just be the Embassy Pro. Um, primarily and really almost exclusively, the value add that Start9 uh, produces is Embassy OS. Uh, the Embassy Pro is, is just a, a powerful hardware device uh, that comes pre-installed with Embassy OS, but then you have the Embassy One. Both of these things will be fully capable of um, serving over ClearNet, as you described, but I'll, I'll provide a little bit more background and context here. So um, initially, we um, offered Embassy OS uh, over Tor only, so not even on the local area network of your home. The only way to use your Embassy and any of its installed services was via Tor v3 hidden URLs, uh, hidden services. So for instance, when you spin up your embassy, it would spit out a brand new, never before seen uh, Tor v3 um, hidden service URL that you could then visit to administer your device from anywhere, including when you were sitting right next to it. And we started that way because it was plug and play, had built in uh, nap punching, was uh, anonymous and private by default, and it just worked, okay? It worked slowly, as most people know about Tor, but it did just kind of work. Um, what we did immediately after that was we went to the total other uh, end of the spectrum and implemented LAN or .local support, such that if you happen to be next to your device or on the same local area network, Wi-Fi network as your device, then you could talk to it um, not over the internet. Um, you would just talk to it on the local area network, which is faster than ClearNet because it's not leaving the, the network at all. It's just the most direct connection you can have. Um, so the way it exists currently is that when you are home, you use .local for both your embassy and all of its services. Each service gets its own unique .local address. Your embassy gets its own unique .local address. And then when you're on the go, you access your embassy and all of its services from their unique .onion URLs uh, and access it over Tor. So this is a nice dual strategy for super fast and secure at home, super slow and secure on the go. And what we need is things in between, okay? Uh, because the trade-offs associated with using, say, ClearNet, like a .com domain to access your embassy and its services on the go 
are um, minimal for, for many people and in many use cases, right? There are some instances where it's like, absolutely not. I'm not allowing this thing that I am self-hosting to go anywhere near the DNS providers and certificate cabal that has come to dominate what we call ClearNet. Um, ClearNet really being defined as um, SSL plus DNS. So when we say ClearNet, that's what we mean. We mean SSL plus DNS. And both of those things involve uh, trusted third parties. Not that they can see everything that you're doing, not that there's necessarily a huge privacy concern, but there's definitely censorship concerns. There may be um, backdoors that we're unaware of. So it's just kind of this like realm of you can and probably will do it for certain things, but it was super important for us to first build out the totally sovereign local area network and tour points of access before building something that has any trade-offs at all with regard to privacy, censorship, resistance, and general sovereignty. Um, however, we are doing it and it is coming. And one of the main reasons that we're doing ClearNet properly defined, uh, like I just said, is for businesses, and content creators and organizations of any kind, because very rarely are you going to be a content creator and tell people that they can find your blog or podcast on gibberish.onion URL uh, on it. And by the way, you have to use a Tor browser. That's just not, you're not gonna get a lot of followers, right? Cause it's very esoteric and kind of scary sounding and not a lot of people are going to, to do it. If you're an organization, say like a church, you're not going to turn to your congregation and tell them all to download a Tor browser and use that to access the church, you know, community forum so that they can talk and interact with other other members. Um, so ClearNet is the way here, which is that in the near future, as you said, Q1 targeting next year, you will be able to uh, reserve a ClearNet domain, either at your own choosing or bootstrap one through start nine, like, you know, uh, nico.start9.me or something like that, in order to host uh, both your embassy uh, and its main dashboard, as well as any and uh, every service that you choose to also uh, strap onto that domain or subdomain thereof. So for instance, uh, you will be able to, so let's say you're running an e-commerce store that sells stickers, and you don't want to tell people to go to gibberish.onion domain to shop, you'd rather have them go to store.simplybitcoin.com and um, host your self-hosted BTC pay server store at that domain, you will be able to do that. Meaning it's being served from your embassy in your home to the world at a very accessible ClearNet domain. This also does wonders for things like Lightning, where Tor nodes can become unreliable and therefore lose reputation um, in the rankings. Uh, ClearNet is just more reliable, it's faster, uh, but again, it does come with this trade-off of you are now involving, we'll call it the incumbents of the existing internet. Um, you are now involving the, the registrars and the DNS providers and the certificate authorities. Um, so it's not without cost. Um, Absolutely. I mean, and there's trade-offs with everything, right? I'm not an engineer, but I always say that in engineering, there's trade-offs, there's pros and cons. And I think that this is no different. But again, I think that this just adds more tools to the arsenal for individuals to pick and choose. Now, let's, uh, and it's really interesting, but we were talking about SSL and, and DNS, right? And just because that's what it is, the centralization of the current internet. And because of that centralization, right? It has inevitably been co-opted by government, right? Is that something that concerns you? Because the, that's the, the vast majority, you know, of, of internet users, uh, that's just how it works, right? Um, we do know, for example, the hostility, not only from Europe, right? Saying that they want to KYC certain software wallets. You had the digital assets framework uh, released by the Biden administration. Clearly there is hostility um, by governments, clearly because this is a threat to their monopoly on the issuance of money and control of people by having that monopoly on money. Um, does that concern you? And where do you see this going? Is is this, and I've heard this before, Matt, and, and perhaps you could elaborate on this. Um, from what I heard, it's, it's really an arms race, right? It's, it's, we must innovate faster than they can regulate. So what are your thoughts on all that? 
what do you see? Your business is based on all this. So I'm sure that these are a lot of the things that you've been, that, that you think about a lot. Mm -hmm. We do. Um, so ClearNet and our implementing it is part of a much larger and longer term strategy. We need adoption. Okay. We need people to adopt uh, what is really radical technology. And oftentimes to garner adoption of radical technology, you have to uh, make it somewhat compatible with and familiar to something that already exists. Otherwise, it's just too scary. Now, for hardline Bitcoiners and, you know, sort of our initial market and community and, and people who have supported us, that's not such a crazy thing. Like they're willing to, to go out on a limb and try something new. It's sort of what Bitcoin does to you. It sends you down this rabbit hole and suddenly you're, you know, you know, there's the memes of somebody going from like a corporate job with a tie on to just being like a hairy person in the woods. And that's what it does to you. And so, but that's not the most, most of the world right now. And, you know, we really, to win this need um, eventually uh, a lot of people switching over to the new technology. Otherwise, the old technology will just persist through inertia. Um, and so while we're not necessarily ready for mass adoption right now, we have to start taking measures to get ready for them. And um, part of that is this ClearNet story of enabling people to self-host on the existing internet, as opposed to what we currently have, which is self-hosting on either the local area network of your home, which is super lonely and allows you to interface with things, but doesn't allow others to, or two, over Tor, which is not only sort of inherently uh, slow, but is also under attack and has been for many, many months, and so is very unstable and unreliable. So what we need is something familiar that content creators businesses and other organizations can get on board with. What we need more than anything is organizations and content creators who opt for self-hosting, but their audiences and employees and partners or whoever they're interacting with don't have to know it, right? Like they shouldn't realize that it's totally sovereign under the hood. These people, your followers and the congregation members, for example, should just feel like they're using a normal website, not realizing that this website is uh, private and self-hosted uh, under the hood. And then gradually they can learn about this and then um, they themselves can adopt this technology for their families. And then individual members of these families can adopt it for themselves uh, as an individual. Um, and so we see it as that's the progression is we go after the people who have reach and get them using the technology. But in order to do that, it needs to be familiar to their audiences. And then we sort of spread to the edges from there. Um, so that is why we're doing ClearNet. We also recognize that there is no future of this networking strategy. We are out to destroy ClearNet um, wholesale. Uh, over the next decade or so, it's going to take a while. But that destruction uh, or you know replacement begins next year. So internally, I have been messaging to the team and and will now begin messaging sort of externally that 2023 for Start Nine um, is the year of design and it is the year of networking. And when I say networking, I don't mean like shaking hands with people. I mean networking strategies. Um, how can computers talk to each other uh, geographic, in geographically dispersed places around the world without compromising on privacy, anonymity, without involving trust, um, but gaining the benefits of ClearNet speeds um, uh, and familiarity? And it's a really tough problem to solve. The good news is, is that there are multiple people working on this problem. Okay, there's a whole category of um, technologies, products, and teams right now that are working on what ultimately amount to the same concept, which is called hole punching. This idea that you can perform NAT traversal, that you can get a computer that is behind a NAT, basically behind a private network, and another computer that is either public, like a public IP, or is itself also behind uh, a NAT, 
how do you get these two things to not only discover each other in a decentralized, trustless way, but then actually communicate with each other in an anonymous and private way? Um, and there's there's a few different strategies. Uh, off the top of my head, forgive me, people I've talked to, if I leave you out of this, there's a few uh, that come to mind. Um, so there is SyncThing, which is an existing uh, application that enables syncing across multiple devices. Um, there is IPFS, uses a, a similar hole punching strategy. You have things like uh, in the Bitcoin space, you have like Synonym.2, you have Impervious AI, you have Keat, which is a peer-to-peer -peer video conferencing app that is built on hole punch. Um, hole punch is a closed source piece of uh, software at the moment. Um, so it's not recommended, at least until they open it up but is itself built on something called Hypercore. And Hypercore is this way of basically uh, arriving at agreed upon state of a system without having to maintain an entire history like a blockchain. So Hypercore in theory kind of obsoletes or, or kind of nullifies many of the purported use cases of a lot of these altcoins uh, or networks that are like, trying to do super fast blocks and stuff like that. We all know it's not going to go anywhere, but the idea of arriving at state without having this sort of Byzantine, you know, uh, fault tolerant uh, consensus system uh, underneath it, meaning it won't resist a wholesale, large scale nation state attack. But for most use cases on most days, it's going to be perfectly adequate for you on a private network. Um, so I know that that was probably a lot of gibberish. Um, ultimately, what this amounts to is this. Throughout the year of 2023, the number of different ways that you will be able to access and use both your embassy and all of the services running on your embassy and the ability of other people to access and use those services if you so choose, meaning you want people to shop at your store, the number of ways that that will be possible are going to proliferate. We are then going to take all of these different networking strategies like Tor, local area network, um, ClearNet, any form of uh, hole punching, um, you know, which always involves some third-party server that stores you know, ephemeral IP and port information. All of these things are going to be buried. We're going to obfuscate them. We are not going to burden the user with understanding anything that I just said. Embassy OS will dynamically assess the situation, like who is trying to access what and in what environment and circumstance, and essentially select the optimal way of connecting to that thing, maximizing for speed, security, privacy, anonymity, um, in order to facilitate the connection without you necessarily even understanding how that connection happened. Um, obviously, if you want more granular control, you will be able to have it, as in you can go in and disable or enable different strategies based on your threat model and risk tolerance. Of course. And and I, I love this, Matt, and it's really fascinating. And it didn't sound like a bunch of gibberish to me. I think what you're doing is really fighting for, because we, we kind of have to take a step back for people that understand how the internet works today, right? The internet works today where is, if I want to message Matt, let's just, the most simple example, really, right? Even if I use Signal, that is great. Even if I use ProtonMail, which is great, you know, they believe in encryption. They don't want they don't want to access your messages. Unfortunately, I can't just send a message directly to Matt. It has to go from me to a signal server to a proton server. And then it goes to Matt. Right. And what I believe what you guys are fundamentally doing, and I think that the Bitcoin node and I love Bitcoin for this reason, is the Trojan horse in all this. Right. It's the reason as to why someone would run a dedicated computing device, server, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's what I believe is the end goal here. Now, Matt, the thing that worries me and, 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 and something that I've learned over the last five, six years as a Bitcoin educator is unfortunately human nature. 
right? And unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, Benjamin Franklin has that famous quote, right? The, the people that would trade, you know, liberty for security deserve neither. And what I've learned, right, unfortunately, specifically in developed countries, in a developing country, you don't have that luxury, right? But in developed countries, a lot of people tend to pick convenience, right? And that's just a sad reality. How do you propose making sovereign computing as convenient for individuals as the centralized co-opted systems that we have today? Great point and then great question. I wanna comment on the point and then I'll answer the question. So the first point being about signal, proton mail, basically these privacy preserving uh, hosted centralized services. Um, it is far worse than your characterization of it. And here's why. Not only is a signal, and that's not a pun, right? Not the, the electrical signal to use Signal, the messaging app, going from your device to a Signal server to your counterparty's device. So you're having a chat with me and it's going like this. Signal's sitting right in the middle. Presumably, that is end-to-end -end encrypted such that Signal itself cannot read the messages. But as you stated, they can definitely do like network graph analytics. They know who you're talking to, they know when you're talking to them, and oftentimes that alone is uh, undesirable or can even be incriminating in certain circumstances and in certain you know jurisdictions. Um, it's worse than that because Signal, and I, I was finding a, I was trying to search for like a nuanced way to say this the other day, and at some point I'll put a tweet out, a little thread that kind of explains this, but maybe explaining it here will actually help me compose this. Um, when a piece of centralized hosted software um, advertises itself as open source, that can actually be a negative thing, okay? And here's why. Because it gives you a very false sense of security. A lot of people, when they hear Signal is open source, they just go from A to Z and sort of assume that the app they're using on their phone and the servers with which they're communicating through or through which they're communicating are actually running that code. Mm. You have no idea what code is running on your phone or on their servers. Signal could absolutely write a bunch of open source code, publish it, and then run some other fucking code on their server. And you have no way of validating this. So in fact, if your signal and if signal is captured, and I'm not saying that they are, it's actually just a giant net for everyone who wants to be private. Okay. And there's a, there's a maxim in, um, we'll call it surveillance in the surveillance industry that pretty much guides the entire strategy for dragnet surveillance, which is good guys don't hide. Bad guys do hide. That is the overarching maxim. So what you can do with this knowledge, right? And it's wrong, of course, right? Good guys hide because they value their privacy, but that's not the maxim that they're, that they're seeking. What they're saying is, is anyone who openly seeks privacy-preserving, anonymous, encrypted technology is presumably or potentially a bad guy. So we're going to look much closer at them. So with that maxim in mind, pretty much every centralized hosted service that advertises itself as the private thing or the anonymous thing is potentially a giant fucking net and you're walking right into it. <laughs> you're better off just using Facebook, okay? You're better off just like using open things that because they're, that's not where they're looking. They assume that anyone who's using those things is totally benign and a good guy because they're not trying to hide. So it's this really nasty situation where it's almost impossible to be private. You either have to communicate on things that are not private inherently, or you have to communicate on things that you think are private, but could be anything at all. We are the middle, we're the, the way to get through that, which is self-hosting, right? The only way that you can know that the privacy code and technology that you are using is actually preserving your privacy and anonymity is to host it yourself. That's the only way. And unfortunately, that is just really hard to do, or at least it has been traditionally, which is why we exist. That's our reason for existence is to make self-hosting 
easy. Okay. So that's just an, an elaboration on your first comment. It's not, it's much worse than, than many people think. Okay. Um, number two, I don't remember what you asked. What did you it's ask? It's convenience. Oh, yeah. It's convenience, oh. right? The, which, by the way, great explanation. And that absolutely blew my mind because at the end of the day, yeah, I'm pulling up my ProtonMail app and it says end-to-end end encrypted. But again, you're taking their word for it. And that's a really good point. I never thought about that. So, Matt, um, the original question was... Talk about human nature and convenience, right? The sad reality is the vast majority of people are always going to pick convenience just because it's just human nature. It is what it is. Um, I've learned this being a Bitcoin educator for years now. Um, yeah, let me just not take self-custody. I have to wait for FTX to blow up. A rug pull needs to happen for me to be like, okay, nah, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Um, so, and it applies the same thing to sovereign computing, right? Unless... And this is the, the I, I believe this is just the reality. Unless you make it as convenient, right, for someone or close to as convenient for someone to have their own dedicated, you know, Bitcoin node, which you guys are already doing, which eventually becomes their own dedicated server of which they can have communications and all of that other stuff. How do you make it? How do you incentivize individuals to do that? Because you know, the, if enough people don't do this, then isn't going to be very easy for governments, intelligence agencies, the three letter agencies to kind of single out, you know, who is doing what, right? It, isn't it kind of, you know, the, 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 the Bitcoin bot model, Bietesi Numidus, power in numbers, is that required for this? Um, and what do you think your solution would be to the convenience factor? I, I'm going to add to this a little bit, and then I want to get your thoughts, Matt. Everyone has a router at their home. Everyone kind of already has a dedicated device that's constantly plugged into the internet. Um, and that seems like a great excuse uh, to, get a, to get a Bitcoin node in there or a, a dedicated sovereign server in there. So what are your thoughts on this problem? I know you've thought about this, so uh, let me know. I'll answer the first one first. Let's talk about convenience as the battleground. Um, you're right. That is exactly where this battle is taking place. In any purchase that a consumer makes or an individual, you know, in any value transaction, there's a cost-benefit analysis that everyone is making, whether it is super subconscious and implicit or whether they're explicitly, you know, researching all the pros and cons of any given, any, any given purchase. Um, and traditionally, the cost-benefit analysis that people have done and are continuing to do in many cases when it comes to SaaS, software as a service, cloud computing, if you want to think of it that way, apps on your phone that plug into third-party servers, which they all do, the cost-benefit analysis that people have done on that has been pretty lopsided. They have said, um, this thing is free, freaking cheap, if not totally free, and it's got loads of benefits. It allows me to do such and such on my computer um, and the costs are super low again if not free there's something in the back of their mind that tickles them that says where is the real cost right and more and more they're starting to figure out what that real cost is this uh, phrase that if you're not paying for the product you are the product uh, i'm very happy that that is becoming popularized um, i still don't think people fully understand what that means um, but at least it's starting to enter the, the general public consciousness is that when you are the product, the cost um, is, is basically everything about you. The goal of any cloud computing or SaaS company is to um, profile you as best as they possibly can. And I don't even mean this in like a your Bob type of profile. You're just number X, Y, Z, right? It's not super personal. It's just that their goal is to understand everything about you not only so that they can improve the products that um, you are using of theirs, but also so that they can sell that data to uh, advertisers um, or other interested parties, right? Maybe government. Um, and so they're, they're essentially monetizing your data and your identity, everything about you. Um, and more and more, 
people are starting to recognize this hidden cost, this sort of indirect cost of these products, and they're starting to reject them. And this is expressing itself, uh, ironically, through regulation and laws, right? You actually have policy now coming into play that requires SaaS uh, providers, cloud providers, app uh, developers to um, minimize what they collect about you and to make it and to be transparent about what they're collecting about you and to uh, afford you ways of opting out uh, of that collection, which means um, that more and more, these companies are not going to be able to monetize you as an individual. They're not going to be able to productize you to the same extent that they used to be able to, uh, which means that they're actually going to, interestingly, be pivoting to more of a normal business model, which is to charge you money. Um, you know, I've, I've said this a few times before, and you can continue to mark my words that over the coming years and decade, pretty much every piece of software that you use um, will be paid for on a subscription recurring revenue basis. Um, the free tiers of these things are going to get smaller and smaller and smaller, and the costs are going to get higher and higher and higher until um, you are basically getting nickel and dimed out of your ability to pay rent because of all the streaming services and apps that you are using on your phone. And as that happens, more and more people are going to the cost benefit analysis is going to begin shifting because the cost is no longer hidden. The cost is direct and apparent. And so they're going to start looking at wow. these apps and going, hmm, well, it does these things for me, but it also costs $20 a month. And so I'm going to not use it or I'm going to look for an alternative. Uh, secondly, um, and to the other side of your, your question, which is the convenience portion, the perception of benefit, okay? The perception of benefit uh, of, say, some centralized, powerful tech company that made an app is really, really high. They assume that it's going to work awesome. They assume that, you know, since it's so big and everyone uses it, that it's good. Like the perception of benefit is very, very high. And when they think about like indie, open source, kind of off the grid, do-it-yourself software, there's a perception that it is lacking. It is harder to use. It is harder to set up. Um, and to be fair, these perceptions are largely accurate, or at least have been for the last couple of decades, because these centralized companies uh, are very wealthy and have been able to garner these massive valuations and sell stock for over, you know, uh, you know, 40x revenue type of stuff. They've been able to hire giant teams of developers to create wonderful products. Uh, from my perspective, what they don't realize is that that they've been doing the R and D for us. <laughs> that's mm. that's our R and D department, uh, Google and Apple. They're doing all the research. They're iterating all the services to teach us, the open source community, how to do it right. And the tide is is turning. Um, the open source software services and applications are learning from their. Um, you know, again, R and D department predecessors uh, and making better and better software. Um, and so the the perceived benefit of these two things are going to gradually get closer and closer and closer. So what you have is two um, complementary trends as we as we perceive it. Uh, and we have, you know, we do our outlook for the coming decade. You have centralized software as a service cloud applications are going to have this rising cost, um, and more importantly, perception of cost, like not only are people going to be paying with their data and, you know, privacy, but they're also going to be paying with their wallet. So the cost is rising. The perceived benefit is at best going to stay flat, maybe go up a little bit. Um, but on the other side of the equation, when it comes to self-hosted open source software, the perceived cost is going to go down and down and down as we and others make it dramatically easier to use and build better and better user interfaces and user experiences around the software. Um, the perceived cost of getting up and running is going to go down. It is inherently free uh, for life, right? It is inherently free in open source software, so you don't pay for it. At most, you're paying an upfront capital cost for the computer itself, right? You need, you need hardware. You got to run it on something. But that's a one-time fee. Maybe you get a new device every five to 10 years. Um, but those 
you know, savings are immediately apparent. Like that cop that capital expense will pay itself off in a matter of months, uh, according to our, our how we view rising costs. So our primary focus on a daily basis is to make the convenience better and better and better, right? We call it convenience parity. Uh, if software mm. is a service up here, we're down here, and we're going to go like this. We're just going to get closer and closer and closer to the convenience that people are used to. I don't think we can ever reach it. I think that it's an asymptotic approach. We will never be as convenient as the centralized um, third-party model because that third-party centralized model is inher inherently built on the uh, concept of we'll do it for you. You don't have to do anything. We'll just do it for you. Whereas the core principle of our model is you'll do it yourself and you'll own it, right? You'll be free. You'll, you'll have total control. And while we can make the latter feel increasingly like the former, it's always going to be easier to have somebody do something for you than for you to do it yourself. But we think we can get close enough that the gap in convenience will be negligible to the massive discrepancy in cost, as in mm. what we're doing is free and easy, and there's no privacy invasions, no chance of censorship. It's totally sovereign. You're free. That's like a huge benefit, um, whereas theirs will be the surveilled, censored, high fees, monthly subscription. Like We're going to blow them out of the water on the cost side even if we can't quite get there on the convenience side. And, and, and that's fascinating. And I, I really I really like how you because it's true. Right. And, and honestly, Matt, I would rather pay um, up front than be the be the product, Wait, you know, the, the, own nothing and be happy. <laughs> <laughs> I Dude, that's does, does Nico want to own nothing to be happy, brother? I battle that stuff every single day. <laughs> I want to be just as free as you. But, um, dude, first of all, fascinating analysis and, and just breaking it down. Um, so another interesting uh, point, uh, Matt, and I, and I think that there's two utopias that people on different ideological bases, they, they look at the world, right? You have the collectivist utopia and believe it or not. And I see this all the time in Bitcoiners, you have the libertarian utopia, right? And that's something that we all have to understand that it's very real. Um, and one of the things, right, let's say in the ideal world, everyone's running their servers. Amazon web servers, like, man, it, it becomes a museum where you walk in there and it's like, this is how the internet used to work. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, right. And for anyone who doesn't know the vast majority of the internet is connected by cables under sea cables. Right. And those can be potential vulnerable points of capture for governments. How does that fix that? How does a peer to peer internet, uh, you know, what we're all dreaming, what we what we hope to find ourselves in the future in. How does the actual how do you guys actually mitigate the actual physical cables that the internet is connected by or connected with? Yeah, you're talking about the long, the long game here, the end game, right? The, the final <laughs> boss of of everything is surprisingly the physical world. Uh, when we first started Start Nine. I told my co-founders at the time that if we succeeded wildly, that if we really succeeded in bringing a new computing paradigm to this world and it grew, that over time, the only way that it would survive is if we vertically integrated all the way to the mine, mining lithium, right? Like that, that we would eventually... <laughs> Oh, man. eventually get shut down. There's a choke point every single step of the way, right? Like if we get so successful and we're really a threat, they'll shut the mine down. They'll withhold critical, you know, rare earth metals from our or anybody else's ability to build chips that aren't backdoored. Um, and so we don't need to worry about that right now though, right? <laughs> it's a today threat. It's a tomorrow threat. 
yes, we need to stay one step ahead. We need to be aware that these threats are coming, but you don't solve tomorrow's problems today. That's how you die. You have yeah. to solve today's problems today. Um, and quite frankly, to be very focused as a team. Um, otherwise, you, you you get ahead of yourself. So the the fiber optic cables are a few steps away. We're not we're, we don't we're not worried about those right now because we can effectively hijack them, mm. right? For antithetical purposes. Uh, I shouldn't say antithetical. They are designed to process information, and we will continue to use them for what they were designed for. But we can make that information encrypted, right? Encryption is the secret weapon here. Yeah. So long as encryption is real, which we have every reason to believe that it is, and there isn't some crazy project that's been going on where SHA-256 is actually broken and the government's just not telling us. I don't believe that. I don't believe that either. They don't have the capability. So um, as long as encryption is real, we can hijack significant portions of the existing physical and digital infrastructures of this planet for our own, to build our own um, parallel digital systems. And so long as using encryption and certain networking strategies such as Tor is not itself incriminating, then we will succeed, right? The danger here is if a government comes in and says something like Tor is illegal, okay? Or if we detect that you are utilizing networking protocol A, say Noster, for instance, which is is of great interest to us at the moment, and there is certain network traffic analytics that you can perform, that the ISP could perform, they don't know what you're doing. They don't know what you're saying because, again, encryption works, right? But they can conclude that guy is using Tor, right? When you use an embassy in your home today, your ISP knows that you are using Tor. They don't know what you're using it for. They can't even see what website you're accessing, meaning it's your own website in your embassy. They don't know what that is. They can't interpret any of the information that's being passed over, but they can say you're using Tor. So the problem comes in is if a government just says using Tor is illegal, then we have a, a problem on our hands. Not a problem, not an insurmountable problem, but it is a definite attack vector. Um, and so we don't think they're going to do it. We don't think that governments or big tech corporations who have an interest in protecting their monopolies, et cetera, we do not believe that they will opt for the nuclear option. And in this case, the nuclear option is wholesale banning the movement of information that is either encrypted or being processed on a given network. Because if they did that, it would require a such a blatant violation of human rights the United States Constitution and basically every Western democracy there is, that they just won't get away with it, we hope, right? As we've seen, the population has a tendency to kind of go along with things. And I've been largely disappointed over the Mm. last years to see some of this. But there are lines. And I ultimately do have confidence, at least in the American um, ethos and history and tradition of individual rights and freedom, that there are lines and people are willing to stand on them and protect them. Um, And so I don't think things like encryption could ever be banned. I think that politicians could posture. I think they could even try to pass bills that make certain kinds of things illegal or legal, but ultimately they're not competent enough. They don't have, they don't have the numbers. They're going to, they're going to lose that battle. So I think that we can hijack, utilize, usurp, much, if not all of the existing physical and digital infrastructure that they have spent building in order to monitor, surveil, and control everyone for exactly the opposite. Beautiful. And, and you're the, the part that was fascinating to me, Matt, and and, and this part of the encryption wars. And I think that we are heading towards encryption war 2.0, right? The nineties was, you know, certain types of encryption was illegal. Then people wore t-shirts with that exact thing. And then, you know, they couldn't win that. And then it's a first amendment issue. Right. And I think we're heading into the second where, you know, for the first time in American history, the U S treasury, specifically the office of foreign asset control sanctioned 
open source software. And I, the reason that I believe they did that is to attempt to set a precedent because Bitcoin, whether you like it or not, is a threat to current U.S. sanction policy, which gives the tremendous amount of power to the U.S. government because they've been weaponizing the dollar to get what they want or to, to believe they're getting what they want because you can't make it a, you can't make a good faith argument that sanctions are effective either. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely think that we are heading into the so-called crypto wars 2.0, and I think that can be a point of contention. But what's fascinating to me, Matt, is holy crap did the founding fathers of the united states 200 something years ago just because of how much they hated ty tyranny or tyranny did they nail that and they made it the first one and um it might become one of our most powerful tools in the battle of the sep of separation of money and state um how do you believe we're going in this adoption race? It, on Simply Bitcoin, we're in the media front. So we, ref we fundamentally believe here is a war for hearts and minds. We need to get as many people as possible taking Bitcoin into self-custody, taking that orange pill. If enough people do that, we win, right? But it is an arms race. Um, how do you believe you're doing on your side? Um, and I, I want to preface that question with... I was also extremely disappointed how effective the their propaganda machine was at capturing the hearts and minds of so many individuals and basically leading them like sheep's sheep's to a slaughter. Unfortunately, it, it I couldn't believe it. Um, so, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you definitely nailed the sort of other side of the coin about what I was saying earlier, which is that you know what we don't do, except for appearances like this, obviously, is the awareness and education aspect of what's what's going on, right? So perception of cost, perception of benefit is all, you know, very largely affected, not just by the products and technologies that are being used, but by people's understanding of them. And so that is why I go out of my way to support and, and try to, you know, do anything that we can to to help you and others um, in your battle to educate and raise awareness towards not only the nature of the problem, but of the nature and existence of viable, albeit nascent, but viable growing solutions to these problems. Um, so, you know, I, I commend you, I support you. Um, and, you know, it's just not what we do. We're, we're technologists and product people, and that's our battle. Um, but but, the but it's the same. It's the same war, my friend. I know. You might be on one front, and we're in the trenches on the other front. But we're it's still the same fight. Exactly right. But you specialization it matters, right? We have to focus on our core competency and what we're best at, and you're going to focus on your core competency and what you're best at. And we join the show together right now to yeah. strategize and and you know divide and conquer. So. Um, Okay, so with that in mind, um, the the core of your question there was, you know, are people going to to do it? How do you see? So I'm seeing it from again the media perspective. Yeah. So for example, the FTX blow up was amazing because I'm sorry for anyone who got involved. You should have taken Bitcoin, not your keys, not your Bitcoin, right? We've been screaming that from the rooftop from literally three years now, but. Um, that's led people to take Bitcoin off exchange. Do you see the same adoption rate with individuals realizing, you know, if I'm not using my if I'm not using my own node, I'm basically trusting someone else's node. Do you do you see that popularity rising? Yeah. Um, so the the very existence of Start9 and other node and personal server projects. Uh, in in the greater Bitcoin and sovereign computing space is a degree of evidence that there is demand for this. Um, these organizations, companies um, are not doing this uh, because nobody cares and we're not doing it um, in light of the fact that interest is waning. It's not. Um, people do care. Interest is growing. Um, and our community the people who um, discover us and take the time to actually look, uh, you know, they, it's like Bitcoin. You have to actually look. It takes a little bit of effort. 
and we're trying to minimize the amount of effort, but people who have discovered us and actually looked become, what's the right word? Um, obsessive. They're, they're passionate. Okay. Our, we don't have customers. We have partners. We have members of the movement. Um, and that isn't something that we like go out and try to guard, you know, rah, rah with marketing. It's just the nature of what we're doing. What we're doing is inherently um, radical, powerful, freedom, breathing, sovereign technology. And we mean it. And we're not cutting corners. We're doing it right. Even if doing it right ultimately results in our failure as a business. As long as we are capable, as long as we survive long enough and are successful enough to shepherd this technology to its mature state where it can function as a viable off-ramp and you know, means of opting out of the centralized surveillance state and of the extortionary practices of big tech, um, then we will have succeeded in my mind. I don't want to die. I would like to succeed wildly. I'd like to make a bunch of money for myself and my family and our future, but that isn't the primary objective. The primary objective is to usher the technology to maturity. Um, and so how do, we, how do we think it's going? Um, I think we're doing great. I, I think that we are doing a good job. I think others are doing a good job. I definitely think that we are leading the charge in this push towards generalized sovereign technology of which Bitcoin is sort of the bleeding heart and centerpiece and you know spear tip of the entire movement. But it is broader than Bitcoin. It is about all of information technology. It's about decentralizing Earth's information grids and bringing power back to the edges of the network as opposed to the hubs of the network. Um, and we are quite frankly very excited on a daily basis, as is our community, but we absolutely don't take it for granted. I personally do not believe in historical determinism. I believe that it is perfectly possible that we and others and Bitcoin will fail and usher in perhaps one of the darkest, most prolonged ages of tyranny and oppression that the world has ever seen. I also think it's perfectly possible that we will trounce them and beat them down like the little children that they are and win this thing in a matter of 10 years. I think those are the two opposing extremes. I think in reality, this is probably a two to three generation battle um, simply for the fact that anybody over the age of X, I'm not going to offend anyone, but the older the generation is, the more unlikely they are to totally learn something brand new and pivot their entire worldview and adopt brand new technology. It's just not feasible that ultimately to win a war of any historic consequence, you need children and you need their children and you need their children. You need two new generations of children to completely change the culture uh, of a society. Lenin actually was one of the more famous people to have said, I believe, uh, don't quote me on the exact wording here, but something like, you give me two generations of children and I will give you a nation of communists. Um, and we can say something similar, which is you give us two generations of children and we'll give you a world of sovereign individuals. Um, mm. And so it's a long game. A lot of Bitcoiners are, I think, overly optimistic about you know, how how quickly we might reach providence. <laughs> uh, I think it's going to take a few generations and I hope to be alive when we get there. Um, but educating children uh, on both the nature of the problem and on the growingly powerful solutions is the key to, to winning. Absolutely. And, you know, it's crazy because we're working in different, we're working, obviously working in the same industry, but we're working in different sectors of this industry. And the militantness and the urgency is the same. I, I say this every single day or almost every day. I say, good morning, Bitcoin or slavery. And a lot of people are like, you're being hyperbolic. No, I'm not. <laughs> right. You, you, they're telling you exactly what they want to do with central bank digital currencies and Jack Mahler said it said it best. Um, and you said it perfectly. Uh, we're willing to do that. Like we're willing to die on this hill because we, we understand what's at stake. Um, and I completely agree with you. The last question, Matt, 
we see this all the time, right? Whether it's simply Bitcoin, whether it's Start9, whether, you know, the, the other militant Bitcoiners, you know, Bull Bitcoin, Francis, right? We, we all have this, there you go. We all have this, um, we all have this, I guess, we all kind of reach the same conclusion and we're all looking at it from a perspective of, look, if we don't win this, they're going to win. And the, the, the life that they want for us is just so atrocious. Why is it that we all come to this? Why does Bitcoin do, do this to people on a psychological uh, level? Is it the freedom? Is it the freedom that they've never tasted before? And all of a sudden, when they have the ability to save and earn and money that a nation state, a country, a dictator, an emperor can't censor or debase, is that what just just snaps in people's minds and then they appreciate this newfound freedom what do you think that what do you think that is because the reason i'm asking this question is because you said all of that and it's fascinating to me i know opti's listening to in the background and we are literally i'm th we think the same exact way we're just fighting on a different front why do you think bitcoin does that to people um bitcoin proved that it was possible um, I know that personally in my mid twenties, um, I, I guess I'll date myself. It was about 12 years ago. Um, I was fairly depressed, uh, not for personal reasons. I, I I've always been keenly interested in history and politics and economics. Um, and I didn't see a way I didn't understand how you could defeat such a horrible beast um, that has become uh, the, for lack of a better term, just our society, our world. And I didn't really see a way out. Uh, the darkest point was Ron Paul, 2012, where I saw hope in a candidate who seemed to understand the game, was absolutely correct about everything, and had a passionate base of young intellectual uh, people. And I was like, that is the makings of a revolution. That is what we need. And watching him, quite frankly, get flicked off the table like he was a fly pestering this monster really hit me deep. I realized how powerful of a foe we were up against that somebody as correct and someone with that much momentum and support could just be discarded. Um, I didn't, I, I, I got depressed and shortly thereafter read a couple of different things and found Bitcoin. Um, those things were um, for as big of a douchebag as the guy is uh, anti-fragile Nassim Tlaib. Um, sovereign individual. I read Mastering Bitcoin um, and ultimately just went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, uh, also a heavy dose of Ayn Rand, and arrived at the conclusion that there actually was a way, that there was a weak point in the armor of the enemy. And furthermore, and more importantly, that the enemy only derives its power from us, that it is itself impotent and incapable of doing anything without the support, consent, and productive energy of its of the people it wants to dominate. And so I was like, wow, we're actually fighting against an impotent blob um, that all you have to do is recognize its nature and opt out, essentially strike, opt out, don't feed it, and it'll just die like the slug it is. And that Bitcoin was the ultimate means of opting out because the central power of this monster comes from its ability to create and control money. And that when you create Bitcoin, I didn't view Bitcoin as a weapon. I viewed Bitcoin as an exit ramp, a way to get out of the, the financial and monetary system and therefore starve the beast 
right? It can't survive without our economic contribution. Then with sovereign individual, plus my own acumen as a developer, plus surrounding myself with like-minded people, discovered a way that I could also get into this fight and give people a way of opting out of the information grid. So not only can you opt out of money, but you can opt out of data. You can take back your data from the grid. And I realized that the monster was surviving as much on its ability to create and control money as it was on its ability to surveil and control information. Mm -hmm. Bingo. Bingo. Is Bitcoin John Galt? Satoshi, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely Bitcoin. Um, yeah. I mean, if what did John Galt do, right? John Galt convinced the most productive, intelligent, you know, leaders and people who move the world to opt out, to stop giving their productive energy to the ver to their destroyers. And I think that's what Bitcoin is doing is it is it is discovering or allowing itself to be discovered by the best of us. And slowly but surely, we are removing ourselves from that system. Start nine, for example, has a goal of being on a complete Bitcoin standard by the end of 2023. We will not participate in the fiat financial system. If somebody wants to buy a device from us and they have dollars, they will have to figure out a way to convert those dollars to Bitcoin just in time uh, to pay us in Bitcoin. If someone wants to be paid by us and they want dollars, they will have to figure out a way to convert the Bitcoin that we're going to pay them with into dollars. Um, and we are doing this uh, appropriately and you know uh, strategically. We're not just going to do it overnight because it would basically mean the destruction of our business. But <laughs> gradually, we will move away from the dollar and all other fiat standards and currencies. Beautiful. Man, I enjoyed that conversation. Bitcoin insulates capitalism and individuals from, I don't want to use Opti's words, but uh, what, what is it? I, I, I call them the monetary demons. Opti calls them the high-level parasites. Yeah. And uh, it protects, protects individuals, the likes of which has never been seen before. Matt Hill, that was quite a ride. I really enjoyed that. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and, uh, of course, what you're working on? I'm on Twitter at uh, underscore Matt Hill underscore. Uh, start9 is start9.com. Follow those two tracks and you'll get a good picture of what we do and who we are and why we're doing it um, and what products we have available. And um, we have a Telegram chat which uh, I don't know off the top of my head. I think it's t.me.start9 underscore labs. Don't quote me on that, um, where that's the sort of community hub. Uh, unfortunately, out of all three of those things that I just said, uh, two of them are hosted centralized services. Um, we're working on it. We're working on it. <laughs> soon to change, and I'm sure that you guys will figure it out. Anyways, guys, that was another episode of Simply Bitcoin IRL. Matt, I'm going to put you backstage for a second. We will see you tomorrow back at the live show, 12.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Love you all. We'll catch you tomorrow. See you later.